want to open this morning with a sonnet from Malcolm Geit called The Feast of Christ the King. Our king is calling from the hungry furrows whilst we are cruising through the aisles of plenty. Our hoardings screen us from the man of sorrows. Our soundtracks drown his murmur, I am thirsty. He stands in line to sign in as a stranger and seek a welcome from the world he made. We see him only as a threat, a danger. He asks for clothes, we strip search him instead. And if he should fall sick, then we take care that he does not infect our private health. We lock him in the prisons of our fear, lest he unlock the prisons of our wealth. But still on Sunday, we shall stand and sing the praises of our hidden Lord and King. This morning's text from the Gospel of Matthew completes our our three-week series on Matthew 25, the final teaching of Jesus before we enter the Last Supper, arrest, beating, and crucifixion, resurrection, and of course, ascension of our Lord. The chapter began with the parable of the ten bridesmaids with oil lamps, and it continued with the parable of the talents given to three servants last week, and now closes with this dramatic vision of final judgment. And I'm tempted to call all these parables, but when I come to the final section of Matthew 25, the vision of the sheep and goats, we realize that this final story is not really a parable like the others, not in the same sense. Jesus does not say the kingdom will be like a king sitting on a throne, dividing people. What does the text actually say? It says... On when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This is not a parable. It's Jesus revealing a future event. It's a story that pulls the curtain back and lets us see something invisible to us normally. And the scene is, it's haunting. He separates some as his own sheep and others as goats who do not know him and never have known him in his various disguises. And this morning, I want to focus on that judgment, on the gift that Jesus gives us to prepare for the coming judgment. Judgment and the gift that Jesus gives us to prepare for the coming judgment. The whole of Matthew 24 and 25 is a discussion of God's final day, the day of the Lord, about the day when Jesus is on the throne and is recognized by all as the one who rules. This is Christ the King Sunday, very final Sunday in the church here. And it is about the action, the moment, the event, wherein the world as we know it becomes the world as God intends it. And the depiction of that is dark and tumultuous because there is a big difference between the world as we know it and the world as God intends it. 
It's dramatic because things have to change dramatically. Have you ever seen someone with a dislocated shoulder? It's incredibly painful, but your arm still works. You can move your fingers. It's still connected to your torso. You can move it back and forth. The arm is there, but it does not fit together correctly. Not until the moment when, with a powerful and skillful jerk, the shoulder is put back into place. Does it work right? Our world is dislocated, and it still hangs together, still has beauty. It's still recognizable as part of God's created order, and yet something has gone horribly wrong. But we have gotten used to it. Some have profited from its brokenness, have come to enjoy its brokenness. And when the great physician comes to crack the world back into place, they will find themselves cracking with it. For a slave owner, liberation is complete annihilation. For oppressor, justice is unwelcome. One of my favorite images of this comes in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are in Greece preaching the gospel to Gentiles like us, and they meet a slave girl, a girl who has been possessed by an evil spirit that gives her the power of fortune telling. And she kept shouting out at Paul and Silas that they are servants of the most high God. And after a few days, they heal this girl and they cast the spirit out of her. But the people who had enslaved the girl were furious They had built enormous wealth from her constant exploitation, and her healing ruined all of that. So they arrested and beat Paul and Silas. The kingdom of God arrives on their doorstep, and the people of Macedonia were not amused. It was judgment. But in this final judgment that Jesus reveals to us, there is no longer any secondary judge that sits on any secondary throne. The kingdom long held at bay by the patience of God, breaks through. And the kingdom of God becomes as solid and immutable as a lot of gravity. And for those who have union with Christ, the sheep who know his voice, this radical change will be a welcome one, even if it's painful. The sheep will rejoice and say, your will be done, finally and completely done in me as everywhere. But for those who are unwilling to say, your will be done, Lord, who cling to the world that must pass away for the world to be made new, the kingdom of God is torment. They are like a person with a dislocated shoulder who fights the doctor as the doctor tries to set the arm back into place, forever fighting, forever suffering from their broken will and twisted heart. Judgment is ultimately about the glory of God restored to creation. And it is an event to rejoice in. For those who are united to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit, it is the day when all is made new. When the kingdom we long for and we know now in part will be present to us when we see face to face. When hope and faith pass away and only love remains. It is the day when our hearts are fully and perfectly healed and aligned. The image of final judgment is meant to be disturbing. We are not supposed to be comfortable with the words of Jesus here. And he wants us to examine our hearts. Do we belong to the good shepherd? 
Or is something, someone, or anything else more primary to us than him? Because in the end, if we can't say, thy will be done, we will be like those who forever resist the physician's treatment. The only difference between surgery and torture is submission to the scalpel. But Jesus does not just reveal to us the power of the coming judgment. He links this judgment to a very specific set of actions, to what we have done for the poor, the naked, the hungry, and the imprisoned. For what, has, uh, for what was done to these were done for Jesus, the king himself. And he gives us this tool as a measuring stick for our own preparation for the coming judgment. Now, I've, I've read this text more times than I can count, but it never fails to cut like a hot knife into me. It never fails to bring the faces of people who I have walked by on the street back to my memory. But this is a gift. It's a gift from Jesus to help us prepare ourselves for final judgment. Jesus gives us a gift to help us calibrate our hearts, to measure the health of our union with him, to test how deeply the roots of grace have been set into our souls. You see, salvation is union with Christ. To be embraced by Christ so tightly that we begin to smell like him, to begin to see as he sees and look like he looks. Those are not things we do in order to obtain salvation, that is salvation. Good works are not something we do in order to earn salvation. They are the enjoyment of our salvation, the fruit. When by grace we are grafted into the vine of Jesus, tangible manifestation of love is the reward. Love is the heir of the kingdom of God. When the righteous are invited into the joy of the king, and Jesus says, I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. They are just as confused as everyone else, as the unrighteous. It's not that they understood that the king was there. They just did this anyways, out of their own heart. Think about that for a moment. The righteous had no clue they were helping Jesus. They didn't do any of the things for a reward. They did them because love had become the character of their lives. They did them because they were already enjoying the kingdom, salvation, already walking the foothills of heaven. The word in Greek we often translate eternal life literally means the life of ages or the life of the age to come. And it is not just something reserved for when we die. We who belong to Jesus already begin the life of the coming age. That is what has separated these sheep and goats they were already at home in this new reign of God's justice and love because they were already united to Christ. So, of course, when the judgment day comes, they are prepared. This is their home. Two weeks ago, we spoke about athletes who acclimate themselves to high-altitude environments or dangerous weather conditions or an event for a journey. These sheep did not feed the poor for reward. They were already living into the kingdom where no one hungers. But unlike these persons in the vision, unlike these sheep and these goats, we do know that whatever we do for the least of these, our brothers, 
we have done for Jesus himself. And that knowledge, that revelation is such a precious gift for us to prepare for judgment. It makes clear something hidden from our eyes and invites us to meet Jesus every day in the face of those around us. And it gives us a chance to know our union with him. If we think we are united to Christ but can't recognize his face in a homeless man who smells of urine and beer, then something is amiss. If by grace through faith we have been saved and set apart for good works what the Lord has prepared for us, and do not grieve because there are people around the world who are hungry and in need of clean water, and we need to take a hard look at ourselves and ask the Lord to teach us the meaning of grace once again. There is no checklist here of what we have done or not done. It is about who we are when we meet Jesus on that final day. Are we persons who have been so united to him through grace that our lives have already been transformed? Or did we place our hope in a world that forgets the poor, a world that has no place in the coming age of judgment? If you're like me, then you hear the words, these words, and know we still have more to learn of God's grace. But now we know, regardless of how weak our eyes are, that we have a chance to serve Christ in poor and broken people. In the Odyssey, the main character comes home after being gone a very long time, and he comes disguised as an old man. And he comes to his home, a beggar, and asks for a bath. And while an old servant shows him mercy and bathes him, she sees an old hunting scar on his thigh and instantly recognizes him through the disguise. In serving him, she sees him. Our gift from Jesus to prepare for judgment is an invitation to see him in the poor. And even when we cannot yet do that, to serve those on the margin and find that we see his face in time. One of the hard things about this pandemic is isolation we experience from our broader community. I used to say that we see the poor every single day on the streets. I saw the poor everywhere in Kigali. It was easy to meet Jesus and to feed and clothe and give him water. In Rwanda, most of our homes had walls around them. And when we had um, a big iron, we had this huge iron gate that was welded. Um, and multiple times a day, we had the opportunity to test grace in our own hearts when children came to the gate asking for food. Now, the first 50 or so times that this happens, you're just moved by compassion for these street kids. But it's incredible how callous you can become over time when they bang on the door constantly. We learned to just buy extra bread and extra bananas, and we had a system down. We paid for school fees uh, for kids who brought report cards, and we simply had a standard offering that when kids begged at the gate, this is what we gave them. But the constant bell ringing and banging was tiresome. Each time a choice presented itself, do I get annoyed or do I rejoice that Jesus is constantly coming to visit me? And many times I got annoyed. And in those moments, I recognized how much more deeply I needed God's mercy in my life. 
But when Jesus comes to us in disguise, he also might be rude or loud or ring the bell when the children are trying to sleep or demand money from you. But if we do start to recognize Jesus in the people around us, what unbelievable riches we have everywhere we look. We will see that Jesus is everywhere here. And we have the happy chance to fill his cup from our own, to give in joy knowing that if he has that what he has already given to us. And if this seems crazy, it is. It is crazy because you are living by the rules of the kingdom of God and not the rules of this world. The kingdom where fish and loaves feed a multitude. For those of us, um, for those of us who work in various types of ministry, um, we can easily become jaded. It's hard to, to watch all the disguises that Jesus brings us. Um, it's hard to know what the right response uh, to someone is who you meet on the street. But I, I decided long ago that um, if I don't have the opportunity to actually have a relationship with someone, say a homeless person, um, that it was my responsibility simply to show them mercy. Um, a lot of times I, I will buy them food, and if I don't have time, then I'll give them $3. It was, in Rwanda, it was a 100-franc coin, which is like 20, like 10 cents, and it would buy a small piece of bread. Um, when we know the mercy and grace of God in our own lives, we serve Christ in disguise. And when we serve him in disguise, we also start to recognize him. And when we recognize him, we take so much greater joy in the world that we live in. Until that day when we see him face to face and all that remains is his justice and his love. And on that day, we will find that the air smells familiar. And our feet already know the paths to walk, like coming home after a very long journey. Judgment, this, this image that Jesus gives us, is really an invitation. An invitation to live into the salvation that God promises us through his life, death, and resurrection. And friends, one of the things I want us to do seriously is to consider the ways we can do that here and now in Boston. And I think the easiest way for us to respond to a text like this is actually to participate in doing it. Um, Boston Temple's ministry um, through Glacier Lifeboat Ministries is doing incredible work right here around where we worship. And I talked to him this week and there are a number of needs. First need that they have right now is just for high quality warm clothing. And so I'd, I'd encourage you, go look into your closet. Do you have a coat or a sweatshirt or something, something that's not tattered, but actually a decent item that you'd be willing to bring to Boston Temple to help keep people warm this winter? And second, he asked for gift cards. Um, they're going to be distributing small gift cards of $25, probably to Target, so $25 Target gift cards to to different families, up, I think 105 families around here, to help them with Christmas shopping. And so I'd encourage you, consider doing that. 
and, and bringing them to the church, to Boston Temple. Um, talk to myself or Austin Kilduff um, to help you coordinate that. This is, this is an immediate opportunity to respond to what God's called us to today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet, Lord, you are so present to us. You are everywhere we look. Make us people who can see you, to know you, to love you. It is indeed the height of your dignity that no one is beneath your love. Prepare our hearts to enjoy our salvation. Pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.